Welcome to the Networking for the People podcast series. If you're looking for guidance on NFTs, you've come to the wrong place. But stick around anyway, as we figure out what our friends are up to, why they are doing what they do, and how they ended up getting there in the first place. I'm Robert. Welcome to NFTP. Today, we welcome Tushar, a true master of the lab and many of the techniques that go with it. Shar is a researcher and harbinger of connecting information across many disciplines. A New Jersey native currently down in Maryland at Johns Hopkins working in his PhD. Shar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me up, Robert. It's an honor to be here. Well, I think the honor is all mine, and I want to get us right into it today. In your own words, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I am currently a PhD student in the chemical and biomolecular engineering department at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm working on strategies to improve CAR T-cell engineering for use in cancer immunotherapy. So sort of a mix between a little bit of engineering, bioengineering, uh, immunology, as well as some synthetic biology. So it's a very nice interplay of many different disciplines coming together. That's really cool. Whenever I think about you, I remember our early days in undergrad lab, even a little bit of grad lab, and you're always asking for new materials and asking if we have new things in the stock room. Um, And I was always wondering and having to double check what we actually had um, because no one else would ask for those things. But you would always find a way to make it work. You hit a lot of interesting points and minute areas with immunology, with the bioengineering aspect and the CAR-T cell therapy, taking a step back into how you actually got into those things and perhaps how they tie into your current research and what you currently do in your PhD program. So yeah, I guess it's sort of what has been a long evolution in the types of research that I have been doing over the past few years. I, in some sense, have always been working in the same field uh, of, of synthetic biology, but I guess just the application over time has sort of shifted. I guess as an engineer, we're sort of always interested in, you know, developing new technologies and finding better solutions to existing problems. And I think what really captured my interest was sort of at that time, when, you know, back when we were in high school, bioengineering was sort of becoming, you know, an emerging field, and it still is continuing to grow today. And I think I was interested in applying the concepts of engineering to biology. So when I started out, I began sort of in the arena of applying synthetic biology tools to develop new technology for applications in biotech. Mm -hmm. We started a crazy project, you know, trying to basically use enzymatic methods for synthesizing DNA, which was extremely wild um, to think of something that a freshman or even a sophomore would do. Um, Extremely weird project. It was a great way of thinking about these new applications of synthetic biology and the future of biotechnology and therapeutics as well. And eventually that sort of led me to question, you know, we're using all these technologies to innovate bioprocesses and biotech. Can that be used to basically innovate therapy, right? Can we use these same design principles to come up with better therapies? And that sort of led me across different places, uh, both at NYU and Cooper and eventually to Hopkins, where I think that's sort of been my motivating uh, force is, you know, how can we use the same fundamental principles of engineering and basic principles in science, you know, chemistry, physics, biology, to really design uh, effective therapies that can be translated into clinic and maybe one day help to save a life. So that's, I guess, my motivating factor and sort of how it's 
been culminated over the past few years, sort of been an evolution from just learning about basic biology principles in the lab and then developing into thinking about real world applications, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've come a long way from those basic principles of biology. Um, I'm happy that you kind of said that your interest grew from figuring out how to apply those engineering concepts to biology. And you're right, I think in the last, you could say 20 years since proteins were really starting to kick off, or even maybe longer than that. And now we're looking into these cell therapies, into viral therapies. And I'm kind of happy for you <laughs> from the sense that you've had this interest for you know over 10 years now and you're essentially on the frontier of cell therapy. I want to focus on how you're actually using, or maybe not using, but have put yourself into this research position through your grad school application process, and why JHU was the place for you to do this work. I guess how I came to grad school is no different than how any other people come to grad school. Um, you just submit an application, you get in. But I guess uh, from the perspective of my story, it was you know a bit of a challenging journey. Actually, the first time I applied to grad school, I actually did not get into any program, maybe as a function of which programs I applied to and maybe you know the personal statement wasn't so good. Mm-hmm. But uh, the following year, I actually you know broadened my reaches and applied to institutions um, more broadly. You know, at the time, I was probably a little bit more serious about going to grad school as well than the first time I applied. And essentially, I guess what I was looking for in the different programs that I applied to was whether there were specific faculty of interest doing the types of research that I was interested in. So initially, I had sort of a broad interest in a lot of different areas. I think. Uh, as I've made it quite obvious, my interest is in, you know, engineering biomolecules for increased therapeutic efficacy. And I wasn't thinking, um, o- I wasn't only thinking along the lines of cells, you know, CAR T's and things like that, but also proteins. Um, and I guess there was a lot of opportunities in a lot of different universities that I had the chance to attend. But Hopkins stood out for me mostly because of how tr- translational the university is. Um, a lot of the research that's focused here is directly oriented and clinically connected in the sense that, you know, whatever you're developing is actively something that you are trying to push in the clinic. And that's something that's a big motivation for uh, my lab and many others at Hopkins as well, is we really try to, you know, work directly in this translational space and not only just making things, you know, to be cool, which has its own merit. And of course, you learn a lot of things, but making things so that they can you know, really be translated to the clinic and eventually help to save lives. So I yeah. think that that direction was really what motivated me to come to Hopkins and is why I think it's still one of the best fits uh, for me, uh, at least for a graduate education. You know, I'm really happy to hear you say that. Sometimes there's so many elements to working in this field, keeping up with the literature, understanding funding, understanding competitors in the space. Kind of the heart of it all is trying to find cures, find treatments for patients dealing with awful diseases or people just dealing with awful diseases and not the impact even just to those the people, but to their extended families and their friends. Doing this research is important in many ways. Knowing that you're working on it makes me feel better, that's for sure. Well, that's very generous. So I want to think back to some conversations we had a couple years ago where you were interested in doing research, but you also had the idea of pursuing medical school. Your work now, it does tie to the clinic, like you say, and you're constantly pushing for, you know, your your therapies, your methods to work in that space. I think 
clinical trials and doctors, there's a lot, while there is a lot of overlap there, there's a lot of red tape that sometimes needs to get overcome. So do you feel like you took the right route um, or at least the route you're happy with <laughs> from the perspective of doing the research in this clinical setting versus um, having gone to med school and taking kind of that, that perspective of it? Yeah, it's a great question. So I could tell you I'm happy now, but you know, who knows what the road will lead to in 10 years. <laughs> I'm just joking, but um, <laughs> for now, uh, yeah, I do think it was the right choice for me. And I guess I could talk a little bit about that. So you mentioned that I was thinking about med school. Actually, it wasn't just thinking about med school. I actually had taken the MCAT, given the exam and had done well. And I think- Of course you, know, you did. <laughs> could have gone to a, a great uh, medical school. The question for me was always very fundamental. It's what is the what are the things that I want to be doing with my 20s and 30s? You know, at Cooper, we spent a lot of time in classes. I remember every semester we were taking, you know, seven, eight classes uh, a semester. And that's, you know, just takes a toll on you eventually. Towards, you know, initially when I came to Cooper, I had this idea, you know, I'll go to med school, I'll take the MCAT. And that, you know, I did take the MCAT, but towards the end uh, of, you know, undergrad, closer to grad school, for one, I was tired of taking classes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I think we all, we all can relate to yeah. that at some point. <laughs> yeah, I was tired of taking classes and did not necessarily want to, you know, continue to be sort of in the educational, you know, not educational, but, you know, med school is a lot more classes than grad school. Um, but I guess the main driver for, you know, my decision to switch was, you know, what are the things that I wanted to be doing in my 20s, right? So the way I see it, we are the most intelligent. Obviously, we continue to learn throughout our lives, but the way I see it is we certainly have the most energy and the most mm -hmm. intelligence when we're younger. And so what is what is it that I wanted to be spending my time doing in my 20s and you know maybe even early 30s? And for me, I wanted to be solving the most important problems that I thought I could solve. To me, that meant basically being in the lab, being an inventor, and I'd spent all this time in my undergrad uh, at Cooper and you know other places um, exploring research, and I knew that I had I had the confidence in myself that maybe I could make an impact by continuing in research. Whereas in the clinic, you know, you shadow some doctors and everything, but you don't necessarily know whether you know you're eventually going to be a good doctor, right? Because you don't actually physically practice medicine at that time. So I guess. By then, I had you know a track rather record of working in the lab. I had a little bit of confidence mm -hmm. that sort of pushed me further. That and you know some grad classes we took, you know, in, in more advanced science. I think just the appreciation for these topics and some of the experience I had led me to believe that uh, I think a career in research would be good for me. And that also maybe fits now with my more refined goal of eventually becoming uh, an inventor. So. In some sense, yeah, it's always an evolution. You know, you start out in college thinking, I'm gonna do one thing, but by the end of it, you might be wanna want to do com something completely else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, it's always a journey uh, in that sense. So it's always an developing developing question, mm -hmm. uh, developing after in that sense, so. Oh, that, that's really cool. I'm you know, I'm happy that you've ha you had the options and stuck with what felt good to you and kind of trusted your instinct. Like I've said before, I've seen you do all these great things in the lab and I'm happy that you're kind of taking this passion into your into your day to day. I think that makes it easier for or I hope it makes it easier for you. I'm sure sometimes the data isn't always making you happy, but that's just that's part of the process. Um, oh, the data is always making me unhappy, but that's <laughs> part of the process. 
<laughs> but yeah, it, it reminds me of the classic graph I think a lot of people see where if we just think of a you know, classic XY axis, and the X axis is the amount of education you've received, right? So high school, college, graduate school, postdoc, etc. And the Y axis is how much you think you know about the subject area. And as soon as you think you've plateaued at the, let's say, college or even grad level, it immediately hits and or it immediately inflects and it starts to go down because you realize there's so much more to learn and you have to figure out yep. how to correctly break basic rules that you've been taught for so long. Um, and that's oh. what and that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, I would agree with you for sure. And I, I think you know, especially being here at Hopkins, the most intelligent or the most creative people are the ones who are, I would like to say, as lifelong students. They're mm -hmm. always continuously curious, continually, continuously asking the questions. And that's something that I've uh, certainly learned by, you know, just there's a lot of, you know, extremely intelligent people here at Hopkins. And and rather than giving you answers, they'll actually give you more questions. So yep. <laughs> that's... Uh, <laughs> It's always it's always about being a lifelong student. But yeah, maybe not in the way where you have to take classes all the time. Right. <laughs> I want to tune in or perhaps pivot to your day to day, making quite yeah. an impact with your work in the lab and moving that work into the clinic. Can you walk me through your mindset when you're working with new assays or instrument based experimental procedures, and what's your thought process approaching a new instrument? a new technique or one you've worked with before and are now refining? Yeah, so I guess whenever you're picking up a new technique or a new technology or even just revisiting something, uh, um, I think one thing that was certainly grilled into us uh, in our undergraduate education, and I think, you know, not, I appreciate this lesson now more than I did back then, is the fact that you need to understand at a fundamental basis what it is you're doing and not necessarily try to remember how to do it because eventually the methodology can be derived from the same basic fundamental principles, right? Right. So I, like, you, you, you know, like, I guess we sort of learned this through all the math classes and you know, <laughs> engineering we took. It's not about necessarily memorizing how to derive the equation, but rather what does it mean in the process of coming through your solution um, and how can you use those basic principles to guide uh, your solution process? You, if you know those things, rather than maybe you can memorize them and certainly get past them, but if you know those things and what they mean, then you have a more in-depth knowledge uh, of what's going on. So I guess maybe a more scientific example could be like, you know, oh, you're doing HPLC, you know, you know, rather than just thinking this is a, a column and we're just running buffer through it and, you know, I have to hit this button and do that, right. you know, you, you you should think, you know, this is, you know, we're using chromatography, we have a solid phase, a stationary phase and a mobile phase. And, you know, because of differences, let's say in uh, hydrophobicity, we're able to purify different molecules or different size or affinity towards the resin. And if you just keep those basic principles in mind and understand or, or try to even learn if you don't know, right? Because some it's never possible for you to know everything, but just to know in the moment, you know, this is how it works, then I think that makes it easier to optimize and uh, certainly learn new techniques, especially in biology where there's a lot of moving parts and a yeah. lot of reactions. <laughs> so you can never memorize everything, but if you know the basic principles, like this is what I'm doing, it makes uh, implementing that same process much easier downstream. Yeah, I really like that example, actually. 
you know, ju just from the perspective of this specific topic, it takes a lot of moving parts, exactly like you said. There's the, the pressure consideration, there's the internals you have to think about, there's the instrument that actually holds the column. From my perspective, I've also started to appreciate more is taking kind of a systems approach to my thinking, using those basic principles and looking at them in the perspective of different systems. Right, like how is it going to affect this part of the system? How is it going to affect this one? Is it going to affect these in the same way in a different way? Um, so I really like that example and a perfect way, I think, to describe how you would go about it. Yeah, the control volume approach. That's right. <laughs> Shout out to control volumes and the people that taught them to us. I want to expand on and to wherever you feel is appropriate on your work on CAR T cell therapy. I think cell therapy and viral therapy has seen a large wave of growth in recent years. Um, and I feel every time I call you or reach out to you, you say, give me five minutes, I need to check in my cells. Can you explain to me what CAR T cell therapy is and your outlook on it? Yeah, so CAR T cell, you can think of it, CAR T cell therapy is, you can think of it as one of the first uh, gene therapies that have made it to the market, or rather I should say into the clinic. And what CAR T cell therapy is, is that it's basically genetically engineering your own immune cells to fight off whatever target cells that you want to destroy, right? Right now and in the clinic, it's primarily being investigated for applications in cancer. Um, and the idea here is that in cancer, you have some upregulated genes that maybe differentiate from healthy tissue. Um, and typically what happens is that sometimes these cancer tissues are become evaded by our immune system, right? So our immune system, when it's healthy and functioning properly, is capable of seeking out and destroying uh, tumorigenic cells. Mm -hmm. In some instances, and maybe in advanced cancers, for example, in cancers that have failed traditional forms of therapy, we might need to come up with more you know, advanced and potent solutions for treating these cancers. So. What CAR T-cell therapy is, is basically there's a type of uh, blood cell called a T-cell, um, which is capable of uh, seeking out and destroying particular uh, mm -hmm. cells that have either been infected or damaged or show maybe cancer markers on their cell surface, for example. Right. That's and one of the few biology lessons I remember. <laughs> <laughs> you lie, sir. You lie. <laughs> but... Um, Back to the point, the idea here is that um, sometimes in, in these advanced cancers, it's not possible that the patient's immune system is functioning. And in fact, in many cases, it may be compromised as well. So what CAR T-cell therapy is, is that basically you're able to weaponize and re-engineer these patient's immune cells or even immune cells from another donor, for example, uh, and then introduce them back into the patient. And in some sense, basically becomes like a living therapeutic. Um, so these cells are genetically engineered products um, and basically they're able to seek out and destroy uh, whatever you know target that you've designed that CAR T cell to kill against. So in this case, you would design that CAR T against a uh, tumor associated antigen, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for example, and, and those would uh, go out and seek out and destroy those. That's really cool. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm not lying when I said that was the extent of what I remember from biology because now that I'm a little bit out of the lab, um, it, the, the themes there are a little foreign to me, but I really like how you explained that seek and destroy. That analogy I think is really helpful because you can picture it quite well. Um, and I'm happy to hear that you're kind of really getting into the weeds with this work because again, we've seen that large wave of growth, large wave of growth, excuse me. 
and I'm excited to read your next published research about it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And I think I forgot to answer your second question, which is what do you think, what do I think about the future? <laughs> um, this is just the beginning of this therapy right now. It's in its infancy and it's really only being applied to the extremely late phase cancers. Uh, rather, I should say those cancers that have failed traditional forms of therapy. So chemotherapy, radiation therapy. I think the, the types of strategies that are being investigated now, I think there's, you know, dozens and dozens of new CAR T-cell clinical trials going on right now. Those will drastically improve upon um, the current CAR design, which at the moment is only FDA approved for treating hematological malignancies. What we've been really struggling with is finding or developing CARs against solid tumors. So um, that's where the future is. And this is just the beginning, I think, for gene therapy overall. And might pave way for us, you know, to come up with new strategies where we might even come up with um, different types of gene therapy products that could treat other diseases like in, for example, autoimmune diseases or, you know, maybe even just general wear and tear, right? You know, the, the options are limitless um, when it comes to gene therapy and its applications. But I think this is just the beginning uh, for a, a whole wave of gene therapy mm-hmm. products that out sometime in the future yeah there's a really good um, netflix series that i saw not too long ago called unnatural selection which talks about not only the science of the future of gene editing but kind of the political and the ethical aspect of it because in a sense you know genetic gene editing gives us a chance to hack biology and hack our own bodies right thinking of our brain as a computer while we don't fully understand it yet perhaps i think we're we're gonna get there sooner or later um, so I'm really curious, like you kind of pointed, to see the future of the industry. Yeah, there's a lot of ways it goes and way to go. And there's a lot of questions uh, that we need to answer about, obviously, the ethics. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting and uh, journey to follow. Thanks for walking me through kind of the technical aspect there. I want to perhaps take a little breather on that element and talk about something else we have in common uh, and we haven't played in a while, but um, I have to touch on one of our favorite commonalities, tennis. I can't remember what happened last time we played, who won or who lost. Do you still have or do you still make time to play and even watch tennis? Who's been your favorite player over the years? Yeah, it's been a it's been a way. It's been almost what seven, eight years since we played Rob. <laughs> but yeah, something like that. Been a long time. But yeah, absolutely. Um, tennis is one of the biggest passions in my life. Um, certainly not the best tennis player that I know, um, but uh, I, I, I do in my free time try to play as much as I can um, and try to watch the sport whenever I have time. And as far as favorites go, uh, obviously you know I'm a huge Federer fan. Um, but he's been out of the game for a little bit. Um, but some of the newcomers certainly are pretty exciting to watch. And I actually have a liking for Daniel Medvedev, even though as controversial yeah. figure as he is. Yeah. But his game is, uh, you know, it's very interesting. I think he brings a new style of play, uh, of def- both defense and offense, combining it uh, in a very unique way. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we'll soon see him take over the number one spot. You know, there's a lot of tough competition with Djokovic always taking lead of the, the big points of the big tournaments. But, you know, I'd be I'd be happy for Medvedev as he takes over that one spot. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see that what the future holds. And uh, of course, <laughs> I'd also give a shout out to my uh, fellow short homie, Diego Schwartzman. Uh, <laughs> also a huge fan. 
Yeah, he's a beast too, and he's a fighter, so I <laughs> enjoy watching him a lot too. Yeah, that, that was fun. Um, I want to perhaps maybe hit you with one last um, question for the day. Um, tying to what we were talking about before about the future of the industry, the future of the techniques that we're going to be looking to develop and work through and discover. You know, the modern labs and companies are building automation into their experiments or creating the foundation for lab-based automation and remote testing capabilities. While we've previously had this level of control, I think, for extremely dangerous materials, you know, toxins and nuclear reactions, the Large Hadron Collider, those reactions happen well below ground. We haven't regularly seen this at the bench level yet, right? So at the scientist lab level. What's your opinion on monitoring your lab and your materials from afar, or perhaps using a NES Power Glove style controller to control your pipetting and assay work? Yeah, it certainly sounds very fun. You know, the idea that you sit at home and you know you digitally control all your experiments, and that's really a neat idea. In some sense, we've actually already achieved this uh, by virtue of automated liquid handlers. Um, but certainly the you know NES controller you referenced was uh, could be certainly very interesting. Um, I, I'm not sure the effect that this would have on the future and whether everything will be automated and remote. Um, I think at least yeah, at least I could say as a sci you know I, maybe I'm not a full scientist yet, but as a potential future scientist, the idea of basically doing everything remotely seems a little less exciting. I think part of the fun of, you know, working a lab is being there in person and interacting with mm -hmm. your colleagues. Um, so certainly maybe it'll hold a place in some industries, but hopefully I won't be part of that industry and I'll be in lab. <laughs> so. Right. We, we have to find where our strengths are and sometimes stick with them, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Oh, that's, um, that's great. Um, Maybe I do have one last question, because I think that this is important, at least to me, and I, I'm curious about your take on it. Um, we've both, and I know you've spent most of your education on the East Coast, and there is kind of a big biotech hub along the East Coast, right? You have your work at Johns Hopkins, there's NIH, you go up the coast, you have a lot of companies in New Jersey, and then you go further up to Massachusetts in the Boston area. Have you ever thought about going completely or perhaps changing your location entirely to the biotech hub on the West Coast or going abroad, perhaps? Or do you feel that you're kind of happy being close to home? Because I, I know I'm happy being close to home. What, what's your take there and kind of where do you see yourself in the future? Yeah, I, I'm an East Coast boy. Um, I certainly like being close to family, being close to home. And, you know, it's possible at some point you know, if there's an opportunity to do research abroad, maybe I would consider it. But as you mentioned, there's a great biotech pharma hub uh, here on the East Coast, all across Boston and even in New Jersey. And now there's, you know, a growing biotech hub in North Carolina with Research mm -hmm. Triangle Park. Yeah. A lot of locations nearby. It doesn't necessarily make sense for me to <laughs> transfer, you know, to the West Coast where the hubs, you know, are pretty much mirror, I would say, yeah. uh, to the resources available here. But I, you know, I just like it here being close to family, you know, friends that I've known for so long. Uh, certainly the culture is also a little different here. I think we like to work a little harder on the East Coast. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
will have to be a little diplomatic and say, I, I like the sentiment there, but I'm not sure about my opinion. Yeah, that was a joke. No offense. <laughs> no, again, you know, I think this has been a really nice conversation. Tashar, thank you for walking us through all of the details to Cartel C Therapy, hearing about your outlook on the future of your own work, your own passions, and the industry. I'm curious about the next steps as you work through these early stages of your career. I'm happy to have been in touch through the years, and I know it will continue to do so. I'll be eagerly waiting for your PhD defense so I could at least join a video call when that happens. And uh, we'll definitely have to hit the tennis court sooner or later. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing and hearing what will be next for you. Yeah, thanks, Robert. I appreciate it. And yeah, we'll certainly keep in touch. Yeah. Thanks to Shar. Thanks to all our listeners for making it this far in our episode. Please visit our website at nftpcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Check out our Spotify. And if you're interested in learning more, complete the Google form on our website to stay in touch. Submit future topics and industries for us to cover, recover, and discover. Tune in for the next episode and see you next time. Hi, this is Tyler, the sound engineer with the Networking for the People podcast. If you like today's episode and the music we played, check us out on Facebook and Instagram and at nftpcast.com. Thanks so much and have a great day.